Hi there and welcome. My name is Jason Brand and you are tuned into the Human Nurture Podcast. This is season one. We're getting towards the end of season one here and we've got one of the big underlying elements of the PACT approach. PACT stands for a psychobiological approach to couples therapy and in each episode we look at a different underlying element. And in this episode we will be looking at neuroscience. We've got two interviews on deck. The first is with Dr. Stan Tatkin, and Stan is the founder of PACT, and each week, each episode, sorry, he joins us, and he talks to us about how the underlying element, this time neuroscience, interacts with PACT, and how um, the guest who we feature on the show, um, how how the interview with that person um, ties in. And today we've got an interview also with Dr. Lou Casalino. And what's cool is there's a lot of overlap between Stan and Lou. Um, Dr. Casalino is a professor at Pepperdine University and the author of numerous books and articles about the overlap of developmental neuroscience and psychotherapy. Dr. Tadkin is the founder of PACT Institute and has written extensively about the overlap of developmental neuroscience and couples therapy. They both had formative experiences in Alan Shore's study group in developmental effective neuroscience, and both maintain private practices and both live in Southern California, and they are friends also. Um, and what what's great about this episode is that both Lou and Stan have an ability to translate neuroscience in a way that makes sense to psychotherapists. But what's also interesting to listen for is the differences in how they think and the differences in how they work. And a lot of that has to do with because they see different populations. Lou predominantly works with individuals, and he does consulting with businesses. Um, And Stan um, predominantly works with couples and has really dedicated his work to understanding um, how couple dyads work. And so there's some interesting ways that they that their work diverges, and I encourage you to listen for that. There are some technical difficulties in the episode. You can hear during the interview with Stan, it kind of gets a little crackly. Um, but you can still make it out. And just a special note, this was recorded before um, shelter-in-place and the COVID uh, virus broke out. And I hope everyone's doing well, certainly thinking about Um, all of you and the world and hoping that you're safe and taking care of yourself. And I hope that this episode can provide some familiarity um, and some deep learning at a time when we certainly all need a break from the news and from um, all the difficult stuff that's going on in the world. So I hope you enjoy and I hope you're well. Hello there. How are you, Jason? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. And you? I am very good. As I said, lacking sleep. But other than that, I'm pretty good. Great. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today. We got uh, first up, we're going to be talking about the great interview with Lou Casalino. Um, And I know that you and Lou um, have a good history together. And he's just a fabulous person to talk to. Yeah, he's he's lovely. Uh, we go way back to the Bradshaw Center. He was a, a researcher at that time on our team, and then we uh, I don't know we've just uh, been around each other uh, since then. Uh, on through you know Alan Shore, uh, we were in different groups, but we studied with them both. Oh, uh, that's kind of cool. He's sort of your litter mate. It seems like you guys you guys sort of share a share a genealogy and professionally. 
Yeah, we do. And then we became very good friends with he and his wife and, and uh, his little boy. So yeah, he's a great guy. Very excited okay. that you got a chance to meet him. Yeah, no, he, he was, I mean, he's the, uh, he, what's the presidential thing? Like the guy you, you most want to drink a beer with, you know, he had that, <laughs> he had that feel, that feel to him. Um, great. Well, get people in terms of um, the interview itself. Can you just put people's feet on the ground in terms of what you think from a PAC perspective they should be listening to? Well, um, uh, first I, I just want to say, and this might help actually. Um, I, I, I was thinking about this last night and I was thinking about all the wonderful people that you're interviewing and all the people that come and ask me, you know, what do you think of this approach or that approach? And how would you compare this to that? And, uh, you know, one thing I've noticed doing this work uh, among my colleagues is that none of us have sufficient time because we're involved and wrapped up in our own ideas and, you know, our own research or practice or whatever it is we're teaching. And we don't have the time uh, to get into uh, in depth each other's work and understand the nuances. And it has occurred to me that that's a problem because, uh, you know, if I were to, even though I, I know Terry Reel's work and, um, and I've, I've seen him work a lot and I know Terry, I'd be hard pressed uh, to really do a good comparison between what we do and what Terry does or what Sue Johnson does because I'm not looking through their lens uh, and I haven't you know, uh, really embedded myself, uh, devoted myself, focused on that one approach. So I think the better way as we move forward um, that when I have questions as I do here uh, with Lou's uh, you know, interview and with Catherine's uh, interview, um, I might say that uh, if I were talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, I might ask these questions of them for my own clarification. So the best I can do and the best uh, anybody can do is look through what they're saying through the lens that I've been looking through for many years. Now, students are in a different position. Students are um, more um, available to uh, listen to other people's work and to study EFT and to study DBT and to study, uh, you know, EMDR, all of that, uh, and really get a front seat row in, uh, in that work. Those of us who are doing what I'm doing don't really have the chance to do that very much. So uh, as you listen to all of these people, you'll probably be, probably be uh, a little more freer than I am uh, uh, to, uh, to adapt uh, your lens. Uh, and that's a really good thing. It's supposed to be that way. Um, so try to look at this through a, the lens of PACT even though that's not maybe for many of you, your only lens that you look through. Uh, and that's what I will be doing um, because it'll be helpful to see how to integrate these ideas into a single uh, 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 approach that you're studying at the moment, right? Otherwise it gets very, very confusing because most everybody um, is talking correctly about something, maybe using a different term uh, or seeing it a different way uh, but it is actually accurate, but it can be very confusing if you're mm -hmm. mixing, if you're mixing ideas, because 
uh, the emphasis is different, the sequence might be different, the way they're actually fitting that puzzle piece into the larger uh, picture may be different. So I just wanted to say that. I hope right. that uh, is helpful. Yeah. Great. And where would you say that there's the most overlap in terms of your perspective on neurobiology and Lou's perspective on neurobiology based on what you heard in the interview? Well, there, I mean, there's nothing Lou said that I, I, uh, that I don't uh, agree with. Um, I think, again, it was also a matter when you were asking him some questions, his being unfamiliar with PACT, um, his focus, his aim uh, is, uh, uh, is uh, particular, right, as is Dan Siegel's. So given that, um, I had to work, stretch to, uh, to find myself um, and my thinking in what he said, if that mm -hmm. makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and let, let's play with one of the ideas that he brings up and see, and see if we can kind of put this sure. into action. Um, he has this, he, so we're all familiar with the executive, the idea of executive function. And it right. often is told through the lens of the frontal lobe. That's, that's, you know, so often how we hear about it. Um, and he puts forth this idea that there are actually multiple executive systems within the yeah. brain and that, that the, that the, really the challenge of the therapist is to help to kind of create a balance between these different executive systems. Right. So there's the frontal parietal, there's the amygdala, amygdala executive, and there's the default mode network executive. Right. Okay. So that's what Lou is coming to. Um, and we, we could, you know, again, through different lens, we could add other executives, the anterior cingulate, the anterior insula, um, the uh, uh, temporal parietal junction, you know. Um, but uh, all of those could be in some way considered executives. In some way, the hippocampus is an executive. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about what I think Lou means. Starting with the uh, amygdala being an executive, people wouldn't be um, I think most people uh, would be surprised uh, to think of the amygdala as an executive. But if you think of it um, in this way, that the amygdala is one of the only structures, a very primitive structure that has everyone's ear. And, uh, and it has, it sort of has a priority. You know, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the part of the brain that's going to get the, you know, the front seat at, uh, in theater every time. Um, it's going to get the best uh, seat in the house, table at the house at your best restaurant and cut in front of you. Um, uh, it is uh, preeminent. Uh, it's a preeminent voice in the brain. And unlike other structures, most other structures, it has shortcuts, which is why, uh, you know, why uh, our behavior that survival-based uh, can be problematic, right? Uh, the, the police person that shoots uh, quickly when somebody's pulling a wallet out thinking it's a gun, that's an example of uh, amygdala bypass or a shortcut. Um, uh, and other examples because uh, the amygdala as much of uh, an exemplar, uh, exemplar of, uh, of the human condition uh, is by nature other um, oriented, in other words, xenophobic and racist. 
And so most likely to pull that gun on somebody uh, uh, who who is of color, if it's a white person, um, because they're considered an other. So, you know, all of these things have features and bugs, right? So the amygdala, I can see as an executive um, from the primitives standpoint, as, uh, as being definitely a grand poobah. Um, in the workings of the brain and the decision-making of the brain, particularly the subcortical decisions. So that's, the, uh, that's how I would see the uh, amygdala as an Great. executive. And, and, um, um, and the default mode network, can you say a little bit about sort of what its role is um, and, and, how it, and how it might act as, as an executive? Yeah, the, the, default, the default mode network is one of the most fascinating um, ideas, <laughs> concepts, uh, groupings, of brain structures, uh, because it is distinctly human. Uh, you know, our ability to muse, um, fantasize, uh, predict the future, um, and especially when relaxed, um, you know, to be able to remember the past, to, to uh, you know, think about ourselves, uh, to gain insights. So theory of mind, insightfulness, creativity, um, making uh, up fantasies, right? All of those things are, you know, come to you by way of the default mode network. And it includes uh, the areas, many of the areas that Lou's talking about, like the frontal and parietal lobes, it includes many of those areas. Um, the standout here in terms of the cingulate is not the anterior portion, but the posterior portion of, of the uh, cingulate, right? So other areas of the brain. Um, it's involved with meditation, right? Going inside. Um, it's involved with daydreaming. Uh, and, and so it's very, very important. Uh, people, of course, with certain deficits like autism, you know, have, our, you know, the default mode network isn't working well. It's also one of those areas that kind of goes by the wayside with dementia and particularly Alzheimer's. So it's, it, is, um, it is a very important network grouping of brain structures involved in selfness. Um, and I can see why uh, Dan Siegel uh, is a big uh, fan, I think, of thinking of that in terms of mind sight mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and such, right? So uh, that's the default mode network. And it includes... Uh, frontal areas, the prefrontal cortex in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that definitely, I would say, is a, a huge. You know, when I think of executives, I'm off, often um, thinking of prefrontal cortex, as so many people are, mm-hmm. um, as being executive regulators. Um, and the medial portion having a different function than the dorsal uh, uh, function, uh, the areas on the top that have fewer upward projections from the amygdala and from other limbic areas, which means it's not as, um, it's, it's not as easily hijacked by limbic areas. Um, and that's a definite cognitive uh, executive, um, the one I'm particularly interested in, in terms of morality and doing the right thing, as uh, Robert Sapolsky would say, doing the right thing when that's the hardest thing to do. Um, so, you know, there's all these different executives as we imagine, because most of this is our imagination, uh, t- taking uh, the research and taking what we know about the brain and, uh, and coming up you know, creatively with these ideas. So um, I'll, I'll be interested in reading his next book, because apparently uh, Lou is going to write about these three executives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it made me think about, while listening to him talk about this, it made me think about your saying that PACT is a capacity model. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if I ever really, I don't think I, I don't, I mean, can, I don't think I really understand what that means. And I think this might be a good place to kind of talk about what, what, what do you mean by capacity model? Well, capacity is measured by, by social emotional tolerances um, in the interactive uh, field, the intersubjective field. So um, I'm fully capacity. I have full capacity until I interact with you and you start to, um, you start to notice that I'm, I'm misattuning a lot with you. Now, we don't really know which one of us is misattuning, but a third person might notice that one of us is, uh, is not good at picking up a cue or a clue or not picking up um, uh, some nuanced sensory input that is being uh, integrated and interpreted quickly enough so that it is, uh, it is useful, useful in, in maintaining attunement in the intersubjective field. So let's say um, I'm affectively blind in a certain area and I don't pick up sadness until it's at a certain amplitude. We might say that, that, that I have a lower capacity. It's like not being able to, uh, to smell certain smells unless they're of a certain kind, certain frequency or certain um, ampli amplification, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about that. Now, could that, could that end up disturbing the safety and security system? Yes, it could. Because I'm, you know, if I have that problem, you don't, then uh, the chances of my misattuning uh, are, are going to be high and more frequent. Um, uh, so does that make sense? It, it does. It yeah. does. And it makes me think about, I mean, sort of a bridge here between what Lou, Lou talks about. He has this great saying, the amygdala whisperer, that therapists are, need to be the amygdala whisperer meaning that they kind of can speak to the amygdala in a different kind of way. Um, yeah. And I do wonder if maybe, you know, us as master regulators ties in here where we're listening for where the couple has these either, you know, where there, where there are deficits um, or maybe over-functioning and we begin to sort of um, balance the scales in a way or, or wonder about to what extent can this, can these scales be balanced between the, within the couple? Exactly. And, and, uh, and the therapist has the same problem as a partner has. Uh, think of this, how many of our patients do we lose because we fail to, uh, to match somebody on the implicit level and, uh, and we aren't able to uh, regulate or manage areas of the brain like the amygdala. And then we fall out of tune. We don't even know we have. And the person or persons leave because they feel uncomfortable, unsafe with us because we missed something. We responded in a way that seemed ill-attuned uh, to what was happening in the moment. And that's on the implicit realm. Nobody's going to necessarily uh, walk out of the office and say, you know, I felt uncomfortable because they'll just know they felt uncomfortable and didn't feel safe. And then they'll come up with some narrative that probably is not true. Um, and so we're dealing with, uh, with a, phenomenology, a phenomenology here that's distinctly intersubjective and, uh, and also influenced by current state of mind. Um, a, a very um, kind of wispy, difficult to define, um, uh, nail down um, uh, uh, issue. 
of, you know, of these systems being integrated and engaged in such a way that they're acting in an appropriate and timely fashion. Um, enough to uh, trigger or not trigger threat in another person. Uh, we're talking about an extremely complex uh, system with, with uh, you know, uh, uncountable um, variables, right? But we, when we get to a, a repetition where somebody has uh, problems, not just in this relationship or in this state, but they seem to have had it all their life. And um, only when stressed or only when that situation calls for it, um, is does the deficit cause a, a, them a problem? And, uh, and again, it's not a gross necessarily deficit like brain damage or autism, but we're getting into more fine-tuned issues here, like how fast the person can, uh, you know, can calculate what to do uh, when a situation goes upside down um, or they intuit the other person is unhappy or feeling frightened or angry or whatever. You know, how good are they? Are, are they going to be at picking that up? And then how good are they going to be at interpreting what could be going on and giving it their best shot fast enough to make a difference, to get back on, on, you know, on track and reattune. Um, we're talking about, you know, uh, lightning fast processes that have to do, ha they must have to do with these nuances and incapacities, you know, in this, in this, uh, nether world, weird world of, of interaction, mm -hmm. which is in fact where we find all the problems between two people, right? It's yeah. always in the interaction. How much, how much when you're sitting with a couple, are you, are, are you using the narrative in your own mind of neurobiology and wondering, oh, this person has, you know, there's something going on in the default mode network of this person, or boy, this person's amygdala. Do, do you think like that? I only do when my head tilts and it seems to fall out of the area of defense because most things we see are defenses, right? People are acting and reacting in a way that, that uh, is, that is uh, protecting the self against uh, uh, some perceived threat. And so then you see certain behaviors that can look like a, uh, like a deficit, but they aren't. But then there are people um, who, whose errors, for lack of a better word, um, keep repeating. And, and, and there's something about it that doesn't seem like it's fully a defense, like there's something missing or something not quite working properly. And uh, that'll catch my attention. And then I'll wonder um, whether this person uh, is, uh, you know, has that amygdala problem that's constantly taking a shortcut or has a problem where the amygdala has hijacked the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which is aligned with the emotional system. It's part frontal, part affect, um, and, is, and is definitely swayed and wooed by, uh, by the dopamine and GABAergic uh, neurons in the reward circuit. So, you know, we have an executive here that, that, can, uh, that can talk uh, as if it's on the side of the amygdala when it shouldn't be. Um, uh, that's uh, uh, a problem in interaction, see? The person is going to make these errors with an executive that backs them up. Um, so those kinds of things, yeah, I, I am interested and I want to test and retest to see if it is what it, I think it might be. Um, or is it just a passing blip 
you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, there's so much I want to ask you. I'm going to, I'm going to move along here to the Lou and I, I presented to him from a neurological perspective, what happens um, in pact when we put people eye to eye, face to face. And, and I kind of fumbled along. I kind of fumbled with him in, in, in describing how it, what it does, what's the, what's the function of it. Um, and I wonder if you can sort of, pick up some of the pieces of that and talk a little bit from a, um, from a neurological perspective, what are we doing when we're asking people to hold eye, the eye gaze for, for periods of time? Well, you know, what he said is true is uh, the uh, excitation that comes with eye contact is, uh, is, is just to be expected. And we do expect it because it's one of the most exciting things we do, especially initially, that initial splash, uh, that sympathetic spike we experience upon uh, making eye contact um, is, is autonomic, basically. And so that's going to happen, and that's exciting. When it stays exciting, and I don't mean exciting in the negative, uh, exciting anxiety, you know, feeling embarrassed, uh, feeling threatened, you know. Um, uh, I'm not talking about that, but exciting like, uh, you know, the pupils dilate and I want more. And, um, you know, I'm drinking you in and I'm drinking what we're talking about in and uh, I think I'm falling in love with you. You know, that, that, that excitement should sustain, um, right? Because that's the come hither uh, and that definitely involves the, uh, the, uh, the dopamine system. Uh, and so, uh, but under ordinary circumstances, that initial excitement should wane and we should then be able to settle down. Mm. Um, the, the interesting thing about the stress test or the container of putting people face-to-face and eye-to-eye at close distance, because we're using the ventral visual system, we need to be up close, um, is that we're, we can test a lot of things. We can see what's going on under that, in that pressure cooker, right? Uh, first, a talk is taken away, which means that there, there's no way to dampen down um, uh, uh, body sensations and, uh, and, and thoughts uh, because uh, uh, um, the language and speech system, motor speech system takes up a lot of resources. And so that's why we talk many times mm-hmm. as it calms us down. Mm-hmm. It also interferes with experience. So we take that away. And now we can see what goes on in the nervous system. How long does it take for that person after peaking with excitement to settle down? Um, are, they, uh, going, uh, are they cycling um, by popping back up again, popping back up again? That tells us something about what could be going on with them and it would be cause for further investigation. Uh, do they cry? Uh, you know, do they need to talk and they can't uh, hold that idea of not talking? So we're really looking at different capacities in that moment having to do with self-regulation, uh, the ability to interactively regulate, uh, um, whether somebody is auto-regulating by choice as a way to protect themselves from this, um, whether they are um, uh, overly self um 
uh, uh, you know, re reflecting, right? That I'm too aware of what you're thinking about me. Um, and too self-referential. And that says something about my attachment, says something about how I deal interactively with people. I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at um, you looking at me. And mm -hmm. that, that throws me off every time. Yeah. And, you know, one other critique I had of, of the way I described pack therapy in the interview is that I kept talking about it from sort of just this window of tolerance perspective. Um, but it's really about, I mean, I, I think what I was missing in that is that we're not just saying, let's just be in the window of tolerance, no. period. That's not no. what we're doing. We're doing something else. And, and I think, can, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I, all these states have to be regulated, uh, even the ones that are hypothalamically driven, and that's fight or flight. That's in the, uh, that's in the uh, hyper aroused area, right? So in order to regulate those states so we can manage even when we're in, uh, you know, uh, in a fight or flight uh, system, and now I'm talking neuroendocrinology, not necessarily that somebody is really fighting or fleeing. Um, but that they that their body is prepared for this uh, because of hormones, right? Because of neurotransmitters and hormones, and and a sequence of events that are that are part uh, partly in the brain and uh, and um, uh, and and partly in the hormonal system, right? So uh, so can people tolerate that, regulate that? Uh, without becoming dysregulated. So we need to put people in that place. We just can't be there as, as clinicians because somebody has to be uh, able to think fully and have all oars in the water. And by definition, people who fall outside of the window of tolerance are operating with, with a compromised or altered brain. They're in a different state of mind, but we are working with states, so we have to. If we just keep people in window of tolerance, nothing happens. Right, because mm -hmm. their problem isn't that. The problem is, uh, is being able to uh, operate in a way that's pro-social, and collaborative, and cooperative, and sensitive during times um, when they are out of window of tolerance, and uh, so that's what we need to have them, so we can see and we can intervene during those times. We have to get them there sometimes in order to make the interventions. Otherwise, they won't remember. Uh, because all of these states are uh, are connected to memory, mm -hmm. and we can't get to the memory unless we have the state online. So, mm -hmm. uh, so we're basically shifting people's states purposely so we can have a look see to see what does drive their behavior and what they can and cannot tolerate together mm -hmm. and you know by themselves and collectively, but also to get them to uh, tolerate those states better so they. Um, so that they are able, uh, better able to navigate and to get out of trouble, even when they're in the greatest trouble. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so it's window tolerance really is for us, <laughs> for the therapists, uh, that we have to find a way to, uh, to, uh, you know, break and clutch and accelerate to keep uh, in that sweet spot of quiet but alert. You know, um, I mean, relax but alert. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, otherwise we'll act out. <laughs> yeah, and this—that's so what that means. I think this also gets a little bit at this question that came up about uh, about downregulation versus upregulation. And right. yes. and can you put a fine point on that in terms of because I was trying to ask Lou like sometimes don't we have to upregulate people? And I think within what you're describing about the couple system, you know, if 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 I go down when you go up, like we need to know. How do, we need to know how to manage that together. Right. So I think 
um, we're, I think you were in an area that that uh, uh, that Lou has uh, less exposure to because of his his areas of of study and interests, um, and so he naturally took that to mean, uh, you know, a uh, a um, a hypo aroused state that involves um, low affects that are troublesome. Um, some of them uh, connected to the dorsal motor vagal system. So, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, uh, people who are staying accelerated and expansive while the other person is, is slowed and compressed. And so this is more like the balloon, Mickey Mouse balloon, squeeze one ear and uh, it compresses and the other one expands. And that's very much in line uh, with, uh, you know, um, the, the homeostatic co-regulation, so to speak, of a couple. Mm -hmm. um, it's not co-regulation the way we want it to be. It's just, you know, um, automatic, right? We're dealing with automatic systems here. So we may need to upregulate somebody to match the other person in order to co-regulate in the way we need to. So a common thing that'll happen is that one person becomes extremely expansive, highly vital, very fast, um, uh, very loud, uh, unmodulated, and the other person suddenly becomes very rational, very slow. Um, yeah, they're threatened to be sure, but they're not in the dorsal motor vagal. Uh, system. Um, they are counterbalancing that other person by memory because in their memory they had that experience as a child and they thought it best to be calm, collected, and reasonable. That of course uh, can be just the wrong thing to do mm -hmm. <laughs> with that other partner. Mm -hmm. And so we may need to upregulate them, get them moving, and get them matching the intensity and expand back so the other person can start to compress a bit. We're dealing Great. with systems, systems here, teeter-totter. Um, or we have two, uh, two lobe-biased um, uh, individuals who are, whose family tends to be biased um, in the parasympathetic area. That isn't to say they're depressed, but they don't get excited about much, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, they are not living in the, in the vitality affective range. And so um, they're, they're fine people. They're not boring. They're not slow necessarily, but they, um, they, they just, their states are, are, are not uh, excitable. They don't rage. They don't, um, they don't, you know, um, uh, get these uh, strong waves of excitation, uh, serendipity, uh, uh, and stuff like that. Roller coasters are not for them, and so, um, and so we may need to um, get them upregulated to get them more into the vital area because many of these folks are afraid of those affects, afraid of those states. Um, there was a, a kind of uh, a sense in the family that we don't do that, we don't go there, and there is afraid of vitality affects as the high folk are afraid of low affects, mm -hmm. uh, almost phobic. And so these areas become unregulated or have been unregulated and we're trying to expand their range, right? Expand their range. So that's, that's what that means. Great. Now, if we're talking about dorsal motor vagal, we upregulate by, uh, by getting them in their body and by uh, using eye contact. And the reason we use eye contact with them or with their partner is be exactly because of the excitement that that uh, causes. And it tends to, uh, to 
uh, increased blood pressure right away without uh, overamping the system, right? Mm. So these are nifty ways of upregulating from there, right? And yeah. downregulating from the other place as well. They, you know, works in both directions. Very smart, very smart. Yeah, and um, just as we wrap up here, uh, you know, you hear nobody wants to be, as Lou described, the person who has a, ni- a thousand nice facts about the brain, um, but yeah, not truly integrated. Uh, under, without a truly integrated understanding of neuroscience, can you talk about just for in terms of the PAC training and and um, and helping helping us to have a more integrated? What, how does PACT help us to become more integrated in our understanding of neuroscience? There's only one answer for that, and that is uh, repetition and exposure and time. There is no other way. Just like learning PACT or any complex system. Um, There's no fast way towards integration. There's simply immersion and time and patience. Um, And it is what it is. That's part of the vertical learning that we're engaged in, right? We're we're learning the same thing again and again. And every time we learn it again and again, we get a aha because um, there's more information, more data to hang on that, and it becomes flushed out in greater ways. So, um, so all of us, including myself, are going to um, start where we start and end up, uh, you know, talking about parts and things we know and heard of and read about um, without really understanding in some way the gestalt. Um, and I would say that's true with everybody, even neuroscientists right? Um, just because they're studying it day in, day out doesn't, uh, doesn't mean that, you know, like, just like uh, uh, astronomers, uh, you see them trying to uh, find a way to integrate a lot of their ideas uh, and to see what, what uh, and to find the anomalies in their theories. So I, I, I think it's just a problem of learning and time and exposure. The worst mm-hmm. thing people can do is just um, be lazy and want to impress people and then learn certain parts and go out and teach them without uh, finding more. That's the worst thing that people can do. Okay. Um, I, I've, I have taught now with, with a couple of people, um, you know, uh, some of them experts in, the f- in other fields like trauma, and I'll hear them uh, uh, teach about areas of the brain that are incorrect. Okay. Um, they're on, on a gross level, they're good enough, but then they start venturing into more detail um, and try to uh, put everything in that one basket. And it kind of shows to me at my level that um, they haven't completed their, uh, or they haven't continued to read or to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that can be a problem. So I'd say that's not reason to to stop doing this. I'm a hobbyist. I'm not a neuroscientist. I love it. It's a hobby of mine, and that keeps me reading and uh, teaching and talking about it uh-huh. and, and learning. Let's finish on an up note, which is talking about seeing all these pack therapists who are really taking up the neuroscience and you know and really applying themselves to to learning it, which I think we're seeing. Um, you know, just across, you know, I know in the ambassador program we're seeing that, and I'm sure you're seeing it in the trainings and in other places. Right. Yes. What was the question? (laughs) (laughs) Just, I don't know. I just wanted to, I just wanted to finish on an up note. So let's let's just call it an up note. I didn't know that. Sorry. I might've just, I I just called an up note. Might've been my lack of sleep there. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Dan. I'm so glad we got to talk neuroscience today in the interview. Can I add just one one thing? Can I, uh, can I, of course you can. can Go for it. One thing I will say though about, um, about remaining in safety 
And that is ultimately, we want partners to understand that nobody, nobody on the planet can be influenced under, uh, under any condition other than safety. If I don't feel safe with you, you really aren't going to be able to influence me. And uh, there are a variety of reasons for that. One being uh, that uh, uh, there's enough uh, uh, critical steroids, right? glucocorticoids in my brain with that, uh, that are preparing me for uh, threat. And uh, if there is any threat, I'm not going to be as receptive, gracious, uh, you know, forgiving, empathic. I'm not going to be those things. So we have to understand that while we're pushing people out of window of tolerance, we're also teaching them that they're responsible for maintaining the safety and security system at all times. And that means they have a duty during those times to reduce threat in their partner and to make, to, to shift their partner's state immediately, quickly. Um, this is a skill um, and return them to safety. Otherwise they don't have an audience and they will get nothing. That's, that is a fact. And so that is important, I think, for us to, great, that doesn't great. mean we're going to, we're going to create a system uh, therapy where they only remain safe because that teaches them nothing because that's not the human, uh, that's not human nature. The human, human nature is to be threatened. Great. <laughs> and so we have to work with that. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Stan. It's been great, great talking to you about the interview with Lou Cozzolino. Thank you, Jason. Welcome to the Human Nurture Podcast, Season 1. We are here today with Lou Cozzolino, Dr. Lou Cozzolino, who's a psychologist and professor of psychology at Pepperdine University. He's written books, including The Neuroscience of Psychotherapy, which is in its third edition. Um, in addition to being a teacher, um, Lou has a private practice in Los Angeles. Um, and not only is he interested in the intersection of developmental neurobiology and therapy, but he also weaves in some really interesting ideas about philosophy and theology. Um, he manages to do all this in a down-to-earth and practical way. Uh, there's a challenge of being too redu redu reductionistic or overly complicated when looking into the mind-brain behavior. But uh, Lou is a real model for how it can be done in an in accessible way. So welcome, Lou. Thank you, Jason. Good you cool if I, are you cool if I call you Lou? Absolutely. Okay, great. Um, so I thought, I thought we would start with, um, with sort of at a why question. Um, you, in, in the neuroscience of psychotherapy, you talk about Freud starting from a, a, as a neuroscientist and then um, sort of seeing that the science wasn't there at that time to really understand what he wanted to describe from a brain perspective, from looking at the brain. Um, and then I just did an episode with um, um, Ivan Naj's wife, uh, the late Ivan Naj, who uh, created contextual therapy. And he started out as a, as a biologist looking for uh, a link to schizophrenia. But then this is in the 50s. Then he gives up and says, well, I think I'm going to go and become one of the founders of, of family therapy um, instead of doing this. My question for you is why now? Why is this the time for therapists to start really weaving in neuroscience ideas? Oh, God. Well, I'm glad we have an hour for that. Uh, <laughs> okay. 
One question. It's a one question interview. <laughs> That's it. So Jay, you can relax now. You can I'll just kick back here. Um, well, I think going back to going back to Freud for a moment, you know, he didn't let on. I mean, except for his uh, his residency with Charcot in in Paris, because he was a neurologist when he was in training, because there was no field of psychiatry for him to go into. Um, but going back to that, he was interested in in the brain and the mind. But you know, back then there was very little knowledge of of what actually happened. It wasn't hadn't been that uh, that many years since uh, the the microscope had been used to discern that the nervous system was made up of uh, cells as opposed to one consistent uh, you know uh, system that it actually consisted of little uh, little structures making up the big ones, and so. The book that was published after Freud's death, he repressed the publication of the Project for Scientific Psychology. In 53, when the standard edition came out, um, you got to see that he had been musing for decades over how the things he was seeing um, and metaphorically describing as defenses and you know neuroses and the like, that he had been playing with the idea of how these psychological or mind processes might be reflected in the physiological makeup of the nervous system. And so I think the, uh, you know, he had a variety of reasons uh, besides um, the, the lack of knowledge back then to not push the case. Um, but I think that, you know, probably with the advent of the new technology in the, in the, um, the 1990s, that uh, people started saying, well, we've got a new window into the brain now and we can sort of uh, start investigating it in more detail. You know, there was, there was that, uh, that piece of it. And another piece of it, I think too, was the basic dissatisfaction with charisma-based forms of psychotherapy because the, um, I don't know how it was when you were in school, but when I was in school, every teacher was more like a religious devotee to the therapeutic perspective mm. than they had any evidence for the fact that their, you know, their orientation was superior to any others. Um, and so I think that what the brain has offered us, has offered me anyway, is a kind of objective, there, there's some chance of having some objective platform as opposed to competing theoretical models that battle each other, but there's not the, there, there's no way to get knocked out. You know, yeah. it keeps fighting. Um, so I think there's that, that's a piece of it as well. And I think probably a third component is the, ex, the, uh, the emergence of, the, of PTSD as an accepted diagnosis. Certainly mm -hmm. Freud and, and Charcot had it because they were dealing with the victims of the Industrial Revolution in Europe in the, in the 1880s and 90s. But I think, you know, the, the, with the publishing of the DSM-3 in 1980, we had uh, PTSD being finally a category we could diagnose. And if, uh, you know, PTSD, I think, is probably uh, a, a, an illness or a syndrome that has the clearest ties to the neurobiological and biochemical substrates. So we, I think of all the different illnesses, we understand the mechanisms of action of post-traumatic stress the best. Huh. So I think though, you know, maybe that's too much of an answer for that question, but um, I think those three things, at least in my experience, were sort of synergistically involved in people saying, you know, the brain matters and um, we're tired of just arguing, you know, um, 
like back when Naj was, was, you know, with the work of family therapy, the family therapist thought every other therapist were just missing everything and no one took family therapy seriously. And in fact, a lot of people still don't take family therapy mm -hmm. seriously because it doesn't fit the reductionistic medical model. Mm -hmm. right? So my, my, you know, I'm, I'm taking the long view. I haven't really tried to create any new form of therapy or new form of language or kind of language. I think what I really want to promote is the, is the basic neuroscience embedded into the science of psychology so our field can move forward as opposed to just always being fractionated. Uh, you feel like it's a little ass backwards in terms of that we should be learning the neurobiology first and then, and then the different approaches? Do you think that would be a better a better way to go? Well, I think, I think people that tend to want to, people that want to do therapy or want to become therapists tend to be trying to heal themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they're not people necessarily that look to science for answers. They look for, they look to become therapists because they really need therapy. So it, it might be nice if we knew the, the neuroscience first, but I don't think that's the entrance that many people would walk into. Be a tough, people, tough sell. Yeah, people need to be on their own mission of healing, and then, like I know for me, I was afraid. I wasn't afraid to become a therapist, but I certainly was afraid to go into therapy. So uh -huh. therapy training and therapy became a back door for me to get the help I needed. So huh. I could say, you know, this is part of my training. It's like, no, it's really what I needed. I just didn't have the confidence and courage to say it. Uh huh. I didn't great. have the language to really understand it. Uh huh. Uh huh. And um. And you do, you do a really wonderful job of laying out sort of um, the overlap between what, what makes up a good therapy and how that correlates with what's going on in terms of brain development. Mm -hmm. um, and, you, and, you, and you introduce four pillars sort of of, of what you think is going on in that process. Can you lay that out for people about what those are? Yeah, you've probably read the book more recently than I have, but let me see if I can remember. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the key part of it for me is that um, when, I, when I reviewed all the different um, forms of therapy, right, uh, I, I shouldn't say all the difference because there are thousands of them, but the major groups, the major therapy groups like CBT and systems therapy and cognitive therapy, you know, and uh, dynamic therapy, if you look at them from a neurobiological perspective, any therapy is only as successful as its ability to stimulate neuroplasticity so that the brain changes. That's what we're in the business of, brain change, right? And so um, in, looking, in looking at all therapies like that, I think that the, um, you know, the core issues have to do with pretty much with affect regulation and, with, and the main vehicle of that which is the relationship between the therapist and the client that the, cl the therapist serving as an external neural circuit to downmodulate arousal in the client so that they can get into a moderate state of arousal, right? That allows their neuroplastic processes to be engaged. Mm -hmm. And that's the groundwork for learning. I mean, that's sort of like um, sort of the, the, the basic uh, sauce onto which the recipe is cooked. Uh -huh. So you need, you know, you need that. And I think in, um, I, I've, I've sat in, I've, you know, I've, I know Stan's work a little bit, uh, not as well as your listeners, I'm sure. But I think a key a central point to Stan's work is, you know, creating regulation within the couple so that they can connect as opposed to, 
engage in defensive relationships or interactions with each other. You're nodding. I'm assuming that uh, that's somewhat right. Well, I think holding them within the window of tolerance. I mean, you know, yeah. something in mind, holding them within the window of tolerance so that they can, as, as a regulatory team, so that they can kind of, um, you know, get to places where they might not be able to get to if they're flying out or go, if they're going up or going down right. within that window. Right. Yeah. So I think that core model, I mean, that, that's a model from my perspective that um, stimulates or allows for neuroplasticity. And so the, uh, the client and therapist are trying to do essentially the same thing. The therapist is trying to create that type of regulatory environment, you know. So you've got that, the, the good relationship, and um, the, the therapist becoming or being able to be an amygdala whisperer, which is to keep them... You know, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you know, Stan talks about uh, was it a min window of tolerance? Is that what you said? Well, that, yeah, that's. I mean, that's a uh, uh, your other the other guy down in L.A. who I'm blanking on, uh, Dan Siegel idea of, yeah, the, okay. of the window of tolerance. Uh -huh. Yeah, so there's that. I mean, Bessel van der Kolk talks about it in a thousand different ways. You know, as far as regulation. So I think most of the people, you know, Levine certainly, Steve Porges. Um, we've all sort of come from different angles to the same conclusion that how central that is. And so when I wrote the, the Neuroscience of Psychotherapy, whatever, 18, 19 years ago or so, it really was that that was key and that was something you saw in every form of therapy. Very different methods sometimes to do it, right? But um, that was a key thing. And then I think um, no matter what type of therapy you go through, you learn there's a didactic component of um, you develop a narrative about what health, what health is, what illness is, who, how you fit into that. And the, the narrative then serves as a kind of handbook or guide into the future so that you can remember the things you need to do in day-to-day -day life in order to, uh, you know, in order to get back on track. You, know, you can't be in therapy all the time. You need, to have, you need to have like an internalized object of your therapist right inside of you. And that's part of that internalization is a narrative. And fortunately, the narrative increases cortical stimulation, which inhibits and regulates amygdala functioning. Mm -hmm. So it serves all of those purposes. So I think, you know, those, those are the core principles. And um, as I laid it out in the neuroscience of psychotherapy, I tie those things to our evolutionary history, neurobiological functioning, and how learning and change take place. Great. Great. And I, I, I heard you talk about how, as your career has has gone on that you've you've uh you've incorporated more ideas about sort of body-based therapies into your sort of fundamental understanding of what makes therapy work mm -hmm. um can can you talk a little bit about about uh about what you think it is that body-based therapies provide um especially from an attachment perspective i think would be mm -hmm. would be helpful yeah well i mean i think what again the the, the key point it, it's really the same point it's that you it's, a, it's the regulation of arousal that you're looking for. And that um, some people are better, do that better top down, and other people do that better bottom up. And I think we all uh, you know, gain advantage from a combination of both of those things. Mm -hmm. I think every, you know, the, the best therapies probably uh, move as many levers as possible to optimize impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and is that, is that, uh... Are you, has your practice, has your psychotherapy practice changed to include sort of more levers as, um, as, you've, gone, as you've gone along? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I used to always have, especially working with uh, kids and adolescents, there was, there's, uh, 
you have to be so much more creative in the ways you interact and the situations that you engage with them because really what you're trying to do is bypass whatever defenses or whatever things that they're not sophisticated enough to cover them up. Mm -hmm. Whereas adults can come in and make believe they're in therapy, but they're actually off somewhere behind some defensive wall. And so over time, I think that for me to use things in therapy, I think I have to have it has to go a little bit beyond the intuitive to me. And I have to be able to sort of understand it in the context of how it might be affecting uh, plasticity and change. Uh, and that's the work of, of sort of figuring out how it fits into neuroscience. That is that is. I, I'm thinking more in terms of, you know, when you, when you conceptualize a case, right. Um, whatever orientation you practice from your orientation has a set of beliefs and ideas about, what mental distress is, what mental health is, and the pro and how it happened, and then also the progression to move through the suffering or the or the symptomatology to get to the point to you know bring them out the other side. And so I think that for me, the one of the key mechanisms that I've kind of replaced the um, the language of Gestalt and systems and uh, analysis with a kind of uh, increased integrate. Maybe if this is more in line with Dan Siegel's notions, although Dan's are more abstract than mine, I'm thinking more in terms of increasing integration, um, awareness, uh, sort of just the, having, having a person optimally aware uh, or moving towards more awareness of what's going on with them and different parts of their body, their behavior, their knowledge, their experience, their, uh, you know, their visceral state, all of those things. And um, just making them, you know, just adding to that and, and adding integration. And with integration generally comes balance and regulation. Mm -hmm. Those sorts of things. Yeah. And it, uh, one idea that really fascinated me that I, I was hoping we could talk about is this idea of um, executive function, not just being sort of this, the, you know, coming from the frontal lobe, but that it actually comes from the, the triune. Is that how you say, is that, is that how you pronounce the three layers to the brain. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. Um, yeah. How I would mean, you? How would you say it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that we've got. Um, we have three, at least as far as what we understand now. It looks like there are three different executive systems, but they're not tied to the triune brain. It's just a coincidence that we're at the number three. Okay. Right? All right. Um, yeah. The the first. Uh, you know the the first uh, executive is the amygdala executive, which we share with reptiles, evolutionarily what evolved uh, subsequent to the, to the amygdala executive is the executive that navigates space and time, which is in the frontal and parietal lobes mm -hmm. and the connectivity there. And, and then the third executive has to do with, um, with self-awareness and awareness of others. So it's more of, a, of, a, of an executive about consciousness and reflection, awareness, empathy, which, um, which is called the default mode network. Right, which is also primarily cortical and just minor um, sort of uh, neocortical, like anterior cingulate and those sorts of things. So it's the relationship between those three systems that needs to be developed and integrated and balanced. Um, and this really sort of became more and more prevalent in working with uh, CEOs and consulting, where I'd see these people that were incredibly bright, say, um, 
and you know they would be you know the reason they got to where they are is because they have all this technical expertise and they may be really good at regulating their uh, their amygdala brain right their their primitive brain so they may not have a lot of dysregulation but they have a very underdeveloped or absent development of the dsm and so they don't really know how to relate to people as people they see people as cogs in whatever machine that they're running Right. Mm. But then developing that self-reflective capacity and empathy for others became the thing that stands out. Right. And you can get another client who has great empathy and self-awareness and good technical skills, but they don't have affect regulation. And that lack of affect regulation really inhibits and sort of scuttles the other two executive systems. Right. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's working with these three executives, executives developing and then integrating and balancing them that seems to be optimal in business. And to go back to attachment, they're also optimal in attachment. If you think back to the work of Mary Ainsworth, when she was observing mothers and children in the home at the beginning of their studies, right? What she was seeing were mothers who were attending to something, they would be easily interrupted by their children, they would be good at attuning and satisfying their needs, and then the, then go allowing the children to return to play and then they would return to what they were doing. So that's the kind of executive function I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That flexibility, it's being able to, uh, you know, to be able to hop from one foot to the other, kind of like Tom Hanks and Big playing the piano, the, the mm -hmm. giant piano. Mm -hmm. is that, uh, and that's about development and integration. Huh. It's, a, it's a nice model because it really um, makes the case for, I mean, I, I mean, I imagine this call it ties into your work around learning, where it really makes the case for a different kind of learning environment that includes more of the, that is, is less sort of top down. We just have to control our, emo, our, our brains to a more sort of um, feeling emotionally based environment. Yeah. Well, you know, we didn't evolve to learn sitting in rows in front of a stranger. We evolved to, to learn about personally relevant information from people we were related to in the natural environment. And so it's, uh, I think that when you, when you think about moving, moving education from a classroom to a one-on-one -on -one apprenticeship with a relative, you get a sense of the, of the gap between how our plasticity naturally gets stimulated and how a child has to be very uh, well developed and regulated in order to survive a classroom. And mm -hmm. we see that, you know, the, the percentage of children that benefit from classrooms decreases as there are more, um, you know, adverse conditions at home, the less resources they have, the more trauma they experience and all of this to the point where you have places where, you know, very, maybe out of a class of 50, there are five children that are able to benefit from a classroom situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I got to say, this is what sort of, um, I, I worked with adolescents and kids for for a long time before doing couples therapy. And this is actually one area where I feel really excited about couples therapy is that you have, you, you have the, the Petri dish in a way when you have the people sitting in front of each other mm -hmm. and you're watching them kind of do this in real time. Right. And, and not only do you get the real time, but you also in a lot of ways, you know, uh, get the attachment piece of you can really begin to, as opposed to kind of imagining it um, sitting across from a teenager, like, boy, I wonder how you're, you know, your parents treat you when you don't, you know, pick up your, pick up your clothes from your room. Right. Um, you get, you get, you get sort of more of this in vivo real time stuff that I, that I, I really enjoy. Yeah. Question for you, Jason. Has, has, yeah. anyone, 
has anyone applied um, your model, the PAC model, to a to a group or a classroom? Uh, interesting question. There's um, Stan recently wrote an article about family about about working with family members. Uh -huh. um, that was the the first real forays that I've seen, um, where you know you're doing a lot of the stuff that's that's done in PACT, where it's um, you know the the close proximity of eye contact and you're holding people sort of um, you know um, in 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 a um, in a close environment and they are kind of having to deal with things in real time. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't heard about it in the classroom environment though. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, certainly. I think that the, um, especially for example, in, in, um, in underserved or underserved communities where there isn't enough affect regulation to go around, you have classrooms that are primarily chaotic because the, the conditions for plasticity aren't, don't exist. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for te to, to teach teachers how to create a regulatory environment yeah. before you try to get brains to absorb information is, is a bad pun, but a no brainer for someone who understands how learning takes place. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but they're told teachers are told that they don't have time for it and that it's sort of an alternate agenda or, or a marginal agenda. But it's, that's really ridiculous from the perspective of if you know how people learn. Yeah. It's just absurd. Yet so they keep, on, they keep on teaching the same way, tolerating incredible rates of, of you know, failure, say, and social promotion in people that are unprepared to do the things they're supposed to be trained for. So, um, you know, it's a, there's a lot of absurdity in the world. You have to, um, I scratch my head a lot. I'm surprised I have any hair left. <laughs> uh, are you are you game for me throwing out a couple of packed ideas to you and you trying to or us trying to do our best at kind of putting them into what's going on in in the brain or in the um in the arousal system sure okay so um this idea of seeing the couple as a regulatory team you put two people together and you go okay your job here is to stay in the window of tolerance as as uh dan siegel calls it um can you talk about that from uh, an arousal or a, or a, a brain uh, a neuroscience perspective? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know if this if this is helpful at all. But I think of um, when I think of like people like Murray Bowen and uh, and other early cybernetic theorists and systems theorists is that they really they took the model Bowen did as a biologist. He took the model for of uh, of a biological organism and expanded it to um, to dyads and to families and all of that. And so the, the, I think that the strategies of, of, of the neurons have been conserved in evolution to where two neurons are basically the way, uh, act in the way people act. And so I think we have a social synapse, like a space between us. And I think we engage obviously in, in sociostatic regulation. So to put it, to put you know Stan's ideas in my in, in the language that I use, it's that you're you're we're capable of regulating each other's affect, emotion, thinking, all of those things. And so I guess that what Pact is doing is is leveraging that um, to create a kind of uh, a sort of teach people how to co-regulate something that they can take home with them that they don't have to leave at the therapist's office. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the difficulty and the challenge I would imagine um, would be the history, the years of history 
that people have with each other and all the baggage that gets activated in implicit memory that leads them to not trust each other because they remember all the times they weren't available or weren't there or were betrayed by them. Yeah. So I guess that that's the, the big challenge, but the basic regulatory processes, the biochemistry of that exists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're capable, just like, you know, when a child is born, for example, or before a child is born, their amygdala is completely developed, probably by seven months of gestation. Uh -huh. So when a child is born, they're completely dependent on affect regulation to the, uh, with, uh, with their parent as a kind of external neural circuit, right? Uh -huh. And so all the principles, you know, all the principles of PAC, I think at least the ones I'm aware of, uh, certainly are in line with the neuroscience. And I know that Stan spent many years with Alan Shore, as I did. And um, if you don't get that stuff right, Alan will correct you. <laughs> yeah, what was, what was going on in that group? It, it, it's like, uh, how, what was that group like? Oh, well, we, we were actually in two separate groups. I was, okay. in a group, I was in a group with Alan and Dan Siegel and a bunch of other people. And I think Stan, Stan was in one of Alan's training groups at his uh -huh. home. So parallel play, um, about 50 miles apart. Got it. Got it. Um, so going back, the, uh, so you were talking about implicit memory. What, we just did uh, an interview with Jeff Zeig about trance. And one of the, one of the core elements of PACT is, is using trance to get people actually out of implicit memory. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I wonder, just do you have any, um, if you can talk a little bit about memory systems and, and how we want to create fresh experiences for people that are within this window that we've been talking about. Right. Well, I think the thing... The thing is, if they're not, if you're not in the window, you probably can't create new memories, mm -hmm. right? Because the the architecture of memory reconsolidation um, doesn't really work very well when someone's in a high state of arousal. Okay, mm -hmm. and so I think that what you're optimally what you're trying to do is to um, stimulate or to regulate arousal, create new ways of interacting which will then stimulate old memories where someone's been disappointed and all, of, you know, and all of that. And then somehow have the person hold the memory simultaneously with the current experience. And it's that type of re, it's, it's basically just mirroring kind of REM sleep. What you're trying to do then is to create a, a state of, of memory reconsolidation where the new memory can be added to the old memory. I think in couples therapy, very often, if you bring, if you move in a direction where the client is, uh, you know, where the, where the old memories get activated, they get so aroused that their reconsolidation processes shut down, mm -hmm. and they and they just keep saying over and over again, they just keep bringing up the past again and again. So the, um, I mean, it, this is this is quite a, a delicate dance. This, you know, this is a, a real challenging thing to do. Um, but to get people regulated to the point where they're getting what they've needed and then they're able to reprocess or re-perspectivize, if that was even a word, based on current experiences. Mm -hmm. Which is what memory reconsolidation, is prob that's probably what that is, during REM and non-REM sleep. So uh, trance, I mean, I don't know if I understand what Jeff means by trance. But hypnosis, would hypnosis would be another way of, of, yeah. of saying it. Right. So this probably, I don't, I don't even, you know, who knows what that means, but just that the idea that someone is in a state of mind where they're willing to suspend their defenses at the moment, that would keep them from having new input. 
So the trance might calm them down. It may be an extension of the regulation that allows them to be open to new experiences. Right. And Jeff talked a lot about, about state change, about helping people to change their state. Yeah. Um, and that, um, so that, that was, that, that was part of that. The, one thing that I actually struggle with in PACT, um, and then maybe you can have some insights into, is, we, is there's a lot of having couples hold eye contact. Uh-huh. Um, and the idea being, I mean, so, so they're, you know, they're, they're very close to each other um, mm -hmm. in rolling chairs, and they, and they hold eye contact for a while. And the idea is that it's, at a certain point, that sort of helps people to downregulate. Um, and, and, you know, you might link it to the attachment about the, you know, the close proximity of, of mm -hmm. you know, the partner's gaze and all that stuff. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about, because um, I, 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 where I struggle is that people have, often go out of the window when, when you have them hold gaze. And, and you have to, what, what do you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, close proximity of eye gazing? And do you have any thoughts on that? Does anything come to mind? Well, I mean, I think it's a, you know, eye gaze activates amygdala processing in all primates, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's probably like any other technique, it's, um, it's something that has to be matched not only to the couple, but also to the time with, you know, in the process of therapy. Because I would imagine it would be, it's kind of like EMDR, you know, it, some people it helps, some people it doesn't help, some people don't have any experience of it all except the finger wagging back and forth mm -hmm. so it's, it's a technique and the technique works for some people and not for others and it might work at other sometimes and not others i don't think anything is a gold standard i um I, you know bessel's this uh, i don't know if it's research so much but his i think sort of bessel's exploration over the years in ptsd is just trying to find different ways that people are able to be regulated right and not have any fixed idea or fixed strategy how to regulate people but to discover what regulates them you know in the process of getting to learn them to know them so it might be that back massages or hugs or hand holding um you know maybe eye contact for many people are too is too much amygdala activation or or and it's also tied to so much other interpersonal trauma you know mm -hmm. And for other people, it might be giving each other a hand massage or a foot, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that with Bessels, from my perspective, besides the fact that he's championed the study of PTSD for decades, is that he's, is his openness to not having a particular thing to do and really putting the onus on the therapist. Says, hey, if you want to get paid to be a therapist, you've got to be kind of a performance artist and a researcher in the context and figure out what works for any particular client. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the, bless you, the, the goal being the same though, right, which is that we're trying to tailor fit. You have a very nice way of talking about um, in, an individually tailored, enriched learning environment designed to support, um, in fact, we would say secure functioning. I mean, so, that, so that's sort of what, doesn't matter how you're getting at it, if it's through the gaze or if it's through touch or if it's through even um, kind of talk, you know, just, just narrative talk, um, that, that it's the tailor fit environment that we're really going for. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, God, there, every, you know, my perspective is that every human being is an experiment of nature mm -hmm. and how the, and how the heck, you know, just assuming that that's like at a core of biodiversity, how would you think that any technique would work for the majority of people? Mm -hmm. You know, and so that's what I, you know, I, I think of it's more just the exploration. 
It doesn't mean you shouldn't try it, but certainly if what you discover is that it's too overwhelming, what's next? I, one of my supervisors uh, back in, when I was just beginning uh, to be a therapist, he was a specialist in um, working with adolescent boys. And what he did, this was back in the, in the 80s, he bought an old Mercedes convertible. You know, one of those, they're like tanks, right, from the, from the 60s and 70s. And he would take out his adolescent boys and let them drive the car. And they would do therapy while they were driving. And I said, well, that seemed very brave of you, because most people would never want to get in a car with an adolescent. And he says, well, definitely there was an insurance concern and a safety concern. But what he said was that if we're both adolescent boys are much more revealing if they're facing in the same direction. Mm -hmm. If you look at the way boys behave, they tend to share gaze at something else whenever they're getting intimate with each other, mm -hmm. right? And that might be related to amygdala activation and socialization variables and all kinds of other things, who knows? But he also said that giving them the, you know, giving them the, uh, the steering wheel was a, was a vote of confidence in them and it was, uh, you know, he was, he was acknowledging their, their development and their stage. And um, so that's what he discovered. As uh -huh. a, and of course, it wasn't good with some kids, especially if they were, you know, um, high, you know, bipolar or acting out or angry. Right. Don't do that. You don't do that. But right. it's like just constantly discovering, like, how do you how do you create an interpersonal situation where um, you've got this downward regulation of the amygdala to activate cortical circuitry, going back to my executive model, how do you activate simultaneously the parietal frontal systems, which navigate space-time, and the, the uh, default mode network, which uh, you know, navigates attachment, self, other, and reflection and imagination. Because you have to be able to imagine a different type of relationship mm -hmm. in, order to, in order to invest in the change. I think it just can't be, I don't want to suffer so much anymore. And that's to also include a bit kind of like a, like a roadmap. It's like, what would it be like if we were sources of support for each other as opposed to of sources of conflict? How might that be? What would it be like to be married and not come home and feel like there's a landmine right. under the carpet every day? That type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one idea that, that there's so much I want to ask you about, but this, this keeps standing out to me. Um, uh, you keep talking about downregulating, um, and what about? I guess what about upregulating people who are who are too low? Uh, you know, who don't have much, who who don't go high enough, or the idea that what you're trying to create is a nice sort of uh, up and down that people are able to ride together. How, how does that? How? What do you think of that idea? Well, I mean, it sounds nice in theory. I, I, what I'm thinking of. Um, I'm thinking of most of my clinical experience, which has to do with people becoming hyper aroused and, 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 and either shutting down and withdrawing or um, attacking. Mm -hmm. right? And so maybe I'm, maybe that's just where my office is located. <laughs> you know, are, you, are you right off the 405? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's like, yeah, it might have something to do with that. So, I, so I don't, I mean, the other two categories you're describing are great, but I, I tend not to, I, if I get someone in a couple who shut down, it's usually because of years of hyper arousal and sort of somatic depression. Uh -huh. like collapse just because they can't take it anymore 
right? But what they're really afraid of is the activation. Yeah. Right. And from a from an attachment perspective, I mean, somebody I'm thinking about a, a more dismissive, somebody who's more on the dismissive side, there's still a lot of underlying anxiety there that would put them, you know, if, if they're dismissing in the, you know, um, yeah, a, you always say that. Yeah, I mean, def- you know, dismissing is a defense just like, um, you, know, uh, you know, anxious attachment is a defense. Uh-huh. With, with autonomic arousal in both defense, uh, both uh, directions, even if apparently what you look like is you've got shutdown, the shut the shutdown is a defense usually against hyper arousal. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and and just returning back to the eye gaze thing for one minute. I mean, I guess the idea would be that that initially there's an amygdala spike in people, but then if there is uh, secure functioning, that what would happen would be that they would calm down in each other's presence, mm-hmm. right? That they would, and that and that really the job isn't the job is to help people to stay in contact long enough that they would be able to go from that amygdala spike to, okay, we are, we know how to soothe each other in Mm -hmm. real time. So that, I guess that would be the underlying idea of it. Yeah. Thanks for helping me figure that out. I don't know. Maybe it just got more complex. (laughs) Okay. Uh, uh, Let me ask you a question. I have, I'm guilty of doing both things. I'm guilty of using brain using examples of how the brain works to oversimplify things. You know, you'll hear about like, well, you know, when you're working with adolescents, well, you know, their frontal lobe isn't developed yet. You hear that all the time as sort of a shorthand for something that I I think is actually much more complicated. Mm -hmm. And then I've got the other side of it, which is that I've done some, when I've studied the brain, you get so lost in the weeds of, you know, there's so much to know in so many different systems. Your work has has a really nice balance of sort of, uh, of of creating a balance between those two things. What? How? Any advice on how you do that? Well, I mean, I think the I think the world the world that we live in now is based on you know sort of sound bites, mm-hmm. and not only thinking back to Marshall McLuhan, like the medium is the message. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the our screen addictions have created minds that are most minds anyway that can only really tolerate sound bites. You know, like the the, the frontal lobe is reorganizing during adolescence period, mm-hmm, and then there'll right. be a, there'll be a week delay, and then there'll be some other sort of um, sort of I don't know shallow overview or or you know blanket statement for something. Um, very few people seem to be able to sustain attention um, on at the level at the level required to understand brain functioning. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a cottage industry of you know every, you know the brain base this brain base that, um, and I I think the the truth of the matter is that unless you're willing to make the commitment to study the neuroscience. Um, that's all you're really going to get. You're going to have a bunch of sound bites that um, will be dis- disconnected and not necessarily helpful. Um, they can be helpful to clients to whatever degree they have something, they have a narrative to hold on to, which makes them feel like, well, it's not a character flaw. It's my brain. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the current sort of it. Maybe it's similar to AA. Well, I don't have, I'm not a, a weak person. I have a, a genetically transmitted medical disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's about as far as the stuff goes. So I think, um, you know, unless you're, unless you're dedicated to really diving into it, 
um, you're not you're not really going to get much farther than what you're saying is having the you know sort of a, a hundred handy cliches. Mm -hmm. you know, but that's that's just that's just the reality. Yeah, I think that's a good way of describing it. And the um, as we begin to transition to the end of the interview here, what are you? Where are you super excited right now in, in your studies of the brain? What what areas are you looking into, and um, where are you finding cool new research? I think, um, I mean, I, I think that this whole, um, the, the, a new model of executive functioning, kind of like I described before, is something that uh, is worth looking at. I think, you know, I may, I may do a book on that sometime in the next few years. I think the, the way in which the, um, the internet, the way, the way in which screens and connecting to the intimate has become ubiquitous is changing the way our brains function and the way we process information. I think that's another interesting, um, you know, not only not only what's happening to our brains, but also how it's affecting society, uh, you know, politically, socially, um, mm -hmm. all of these different uh, people are, and the more connected people get, the more lonely we're becoming, you know, mm -hmm. as, a, as a culture. So I think those are, those are a couple of things that are, are really interesting. And I think, Another area that I'm interested in and in exploring is the sort of the holdovers, the evolutionary holdovers that are still inside of us that we don't talk about. In other words, like inborn um, biological and genetic tendencies towards alpha and beta functioning and how that stuff manifests all the time in our lives. Yet we live in a democracy, so we're all equal. So we're not allowed to talk about status and hierarchies and all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so it would be nice to have a language that allowed us to talk about it in a way where we can actually learn about what's happening as opposed to make, making believe it isn't happening. Mm -hmm. Great. So a few things I come to mind. Okay. That's great. And, um, and where do you, where do you suggest, I mean, generally, where do you suggest people begin if they want to start diving into neuroscience and, and particularly in your work, how does somebody begin to access your work in a way that um, sort of, you know, opens it up at a, at a pace that they can handle? Yeah. I think I wrote a book called Why Therapy Works, which is in many ways a kind of, a kind of a consolidation and introduction to the neuroscience of psychotherapy, which is much um, heavier. You know, it's a much heavier scientific uh, scientific book. And the um, the book called uh, that I the neuroscience of human relationships is an outgrowth of the attachment chapters from the neuroscience of psychotherapy. So I think that if you if you wanted to get sort of a broad view of of my work, that's I would start in uh, you know why therapy works, and um, you know there are some really bright people out there. For example, uh, Antonio Damasio's book Descartes' Error is, mm. is a very important introduction. Although it's uh, uh, Antonio writes about the brain as if it was isolated from every other brain and you know sort of lived in space. And so you have to just put that into in context. The people that are bench researchers, like he and Joe Ledoux and those folks, they're not therapists, and they think about the brain as a functioning organ. Yeah. So you've got to you sort of have to have the savvy to know you're looking at people that have a whole different perspective on the brain than therapists do, and especially than, than couples therapy do. Mm -hmm. But all of the information is valuable and important. Right. Yeah. And I just made a connection, which is I think what makes your work so accessible is your emphasis on the social brain. And somehow it sort of democratizes it for a kind of 
oh yeah, I know about a classroom where teachers care about the well-being of the kids. Like, you, yeah. you, there's just a way that you can that you can build connections. I think that make it very accessible. Um, yeah. And I highly recommend that people go out and get your books. And um, boy, I really enjoyed talking to you today. I appreciate the time. Thank you. I did too. Time went by very quickly. I to I, I know. I agree. Which I think is a sign of a of a fun interview. So thanks, Lou. It's great talking to you. Take care. Bye bye.